Okay, good morning and welcome to Ordinary Life, those of you in person and those of you um, viewing from afar. Um, St. Paul's United Methodist Church makes this as an educational offering, and um, we're calling today's class. We're meeting at a very deep well. I hope you brought a big bucket. So... Um, So, we have begun beginning in silence. Mm. With an awareness that sacred mystery is right here, right now, or God, or ground of being, or whatever other word you want to use for the mystery. Our intention is to know that, that who we are, who we are in God and who God is in us. And may we be here, may we see, may we know who you are in you and who you are in us, and may we grow so that we can participate co-creatively in the life of this world, and may what we do in here benefit all creation. And no matter who you are, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, you are, you are welcome, welcome here. here. So you know that we have been, uh, oh, by the way, there's one other thing that uh, we want to announce, right? Mm -hmm. At the end of this time today, before we're done, before the closing piece, we're going to open it up for Q&A, and I forgot to tell the tech people that. Surprise! <laughs> oh, shoot. So I guess we need that portable microphone at some so, point. So uh, at some point we'll need a portable mic. Or maybe you? we'll make Richard in charge He's of it. He's going to make sure okay. that it happens. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> you just got a job, sir. Thank you. <laughs> so as you know, we have been basing these talks on the uh, Gospel of John. And we're using three primary sources, two. Um, one is by... John Sanford called Mystical Christianity, his commentary on the fourth gospel, and then John Shelby Spong's commentary on the fourth gospel. And then, of course, John itself. Then John itself. And I'm also using a, a McReynolds commentary. He has three-volume commentary on the gospel of John. Each book is about this thick. The, the introduction to the gospel of John is this thick, the first 12 chapters or about this thick, and then the rest, of the next volume is about this thick. Sanford was a very prolific writer, and um, one of his books that I have read multiple times, and this, by the way, is now available on Kindle, is called The Kingdom Within, The Inner Meanings of the Sayings of Jesus. And at the beginning of this book, Sanford tells a story that is particularly apt for what we're going to deal with today. He said that when he was a boy, his family spent a month each summer in a, in a farmhouse that was over 150 years old. It had never been modernized. And his father, who was an Episcopal priest, chose to live in that house quite simply. That meant without the benefit of modern plumbing, without electricity, um, 
wood stove in the kitchen. And the source of water during those days was an old well that stood just outside the front door. And he writes that the water from this well was unusually cold and pure, and it was just a joy to drink. Any of you have ever had this experience in the country, <laughs> which my mother's parents lived in the Cumberland Mountains without benefit of running water and had a well right at their back door, just like this. And this, this well, according to Sanford, never ran dry. Even when their neighbor's well ran, wells ran dry in summer droughts, this well continued to give cool, clear water. The day came when it was decided to modernize the house. So electricity replaced kerosene lamps. An electric stove was put in the kitchen. Modern plumbing and running water were installed and this call for a new well. So a deep artesian well was drilled a few hundred feet from the house, and since this well was no longer needed, the old well near the front door was covered up. Well, after a number of years, Sanford grew up, became a man, moved off, they moved away from this, and years later, he returned to this house and he decided to check on the old well, to uncover it and see how it was doing. And what he found was not the same dark, cool, moist depths he'd known as a boy, but the well was bone dry. And he said it took a long time, many inquiries for him to find out what had happened. What he found out was that a well of that kind is fed by hundreds of tiny underground rivulets along which seeps a constant supply of water. And as water is drawn up from the well, more water moves along these rivulets, keeping them open, keeping the apertures clear so that more water gets into the well. But if such a well is not used and water is not drawn regularly up, the rivulets close up. So the well went dry, not because there was no water, but because it had not been used. You see where this is going, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> so Sanford uses that story to say what he calls the human soul is like that well. And he writes, quote, What happened to the old well can also happen to us if the living water of God does not flow into us. And I would add flow from us as well. Sanford says that in order to lift water up from a well like this, it's necessary to have a long rope, a big bucket, in order to reach the water. And he contends that the teachings of Jesus are such a rope that we can use to connect us to the depths of ourselves and so also to God. This is, this is one of the prime teachings of all the mystics that when we discover God within, we discover ourselves and we also discover God without. So one of my hopes for making this journey through the Gospel of John uh, is that we uncover such a well and be able to use it. And uh, so today, we're up to one of the two stories that is between the first sign in the Book of Signs in John, which is the turning of water, again water, into wine, and the second story, which we'll get to in a couple of weeks, 
which is the healing of the centurion's son. And stuck between these two stories are the story of Nicodemus, you remember? The water is also in that story. And now the story of the woman, the Samaritan woman at the well. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to guess that many of us are familiar with this story. And um, your study turned it on. There you go. <laughs> so the basic gist of it is that a Samaritan woman went to Jacob's well, which is an ancient well, to get water. Jesus is there. He's tired and thirsty. And he asks her to give him a drink. She is shocked by his asking because she is a Samaritan, he is a Jew, she is a woman, he is a man. She is considered unclean and he is considered clean. Jesus takes her water and says to her that this water will never quench thirst, that only the living water, the water that Jesus has, will be an artesian spring within, gushing fountains of endless life. The traditional interpretations of the story are often around Jesus offering this unclean woman, she's often portrayed as a prostitute, grace and mercy, equating Jesus, therefore, with salvation, eternal life, and highlighting the importance of becoming kind of proselytizers for Christianity. And central to these interpretations is this need of Jesus and Jesus's message. The story has also so often been used as a kind of um, colonizing text. So throughout history, that Christianity has played a central role in attempting to reform the conscience and consciousness of many people, especially nations whose primary religion isn't Christianity, like Africa, Native Americans, other indigenous people have been missionized, if you will. The implication is that non-Christian spiritualities are inferior to Christianity. Europe Europeans used the Bible as a tool to spread ideologies to people they considered uncivilized. And in so many places, Christianity equated with taking over the land and the people. And ironically, many of the colonizers' countries would adopt Christianity as the sort of national religion. When I was in Malawi almost 16 years ago, I witnessed this kind of interesting hybrid of indigenous or shamanic practices with Christian practices. So um, shamanic practices are really often earth-based um, in which the shaman interacts with the spirit world in a kind of altered state of consciousness, calls the spirits into being, into the room, if you will. And post-colonization, these practices were not set aside, but they sometimes existed right alongside Christian practices. So you'd see, for example, uh, someone receiving a Western medical treatment alongside the shamanic treatment for some ill health. In one village, there was this ancient tree alongside a church, and it was called the spirit tree. I think these existed in many parts of Malawi, but it was decorated with cloths, with masks, with carvings, mirrors, other various objects that were intended to draw spirits home. It was sacred. And so we couldn't photograph it. That was the cardinal rule. You cannot photograph this tree. So I did my very best to make a sketch of it, which doesn't do it justice at all, but maybe gives you some idea. I mean, it was literally just hanging and hanging with things. It was bigger than any of these oak trees aligning Main Street. With the Christian text now so embedded in many African cultures, um, contemporary African theologians have taken up the task of what we call decolonizing these texts. 
making the stories more relevant to their own lives and locations and retelling them in their voice. There's an African saying that when the white man came to our country, he had the Bible and we had the land. The white man said, let's pray. And after the prayer, the white man had the land and we had the Bible. <laughs> Way to go, colonizers. <laughs> Carl Jung uh, was pretty on the nose when he said, the Christian missionary may preach the gospel to the poor naked heathen, but the spiritual heathen who populate Europe has, have as yet heard nothing of Christianity. Here's a retelling of the woman and the well story from a feminist liberation theologian, Musa W. Dub of Botswana. She was educated both in Botswana as well as at Vanderbilt um, Seminary School of Theology. Is that a seminary or a theology school? Mm-hmm. Yeah. At Vanderbilt. Okay. So anyhow, um, she tells the story in this way. Mampula went down the river to fetch water for her plants. Beside the well sat a still woman dressed in white clothing. Her head was bowed and focused in her open hands. Mapula trod slowly, wondering who she was and what she was doing at this place and time. Mapula sat down by the well and began to fill her container with water. Just when she was about to leave, the woman in white looked up and said, Samaritan woman, give me a drink. Mapula gave her a drink. Samaritan woman, go and call your husband, she says, retaining Mapula's gourd without ever drinking the water. I am not a Samaritan woman and I have no husband. The woman in white closed her eyes for some seconds and said, you have spoken well. You have no husband. In fact, the husband that you have does not belong to you, but to the mines. I have come to give you a drink of living water. And she hands Mapula back the full gourd full of her own water. Go back to your village and announce that a prophetess has come bringing healing to the brokenhearted. A prophet has come bringing healing to Borolong. The news spread at the speed of a veld fire through the small village. So in this story, there's so many rich images, um, starting with the veld, or not starting with, ending with the veld fire. That's, the veld is an African landscape. It's a grassland that's covered with grasses and shrubs and, can, and so often is very dry and can catch fire like that. So the, in using these sort of familiar landscapes, she brings the story to Africa as opposed to a story that existed outside of Africa meant to, conform, uh, meant to proselytize to Africans. She also uses, if, if you notice, there's a woman, it's a woman at the well who speaks to the Samaritan. She hands her back her own water. There's more to this. We'll get into it. This story does teach us that we need Jesus but just not in the way that we are traditionally taught. Jesus reminds us that being who we truly are is what saves us. It is our living water. So <clears throat> in uh, 1914, I'm going to cite two dates uh, in this talk today. This is one of them. Uh, you know what was going on in the world in 1914. In 1914, a Swiss psychiatrist, and I'm going to mispronounce his name, I'm sure, Eugen Blauer, what would you say? 
Is that close enough? Anyone Swiss in here? No? I don't know. <laughs> I'm Texan. I always butcher these names. <laughs> Ask George. In Snow. 1914, he coined several terms. He was a psychiatrist. And among these were the terms schizophrenia, schizoid, autism, and depth psychiatry. Depth psychology is um, a discipline that explores the relationship between what we call the conscious and the unconscious mind. And since the beginning of my own psychological training, depth psychology has been the arena in which I've been trained. Um, now, the person that you hear me quote the most was Carl Jung, who is also doing his work around this particular uh, time, a little, little later, but they were, these, these guys knew each other. There are many, many other leading lights in the depth psychology field. Um, William James, Holly quotes him a lot, Otto Rank, uh, Alfred Adler, Melanie Klein, uh, Donald Winnicott, James Hillman, famous uh, in-depth union uh, analyst. And all of these people have contributed to my understanding of the unconscious, particularly the work of Alfred Adler. But I continue to return to the world and the work of Carl Jung because it has been so beneficial to me. I am unashamed to say that doing Jungian dream analysis saved my life. There was a period in my life where doing that work was life-saving for me. And further, I find Jung to be a very spiritual person. And in his understanding of the collective unconscious, he shows that all minds and all lives ultimately participate in some sort of embedded myth-making form. We all share common stories, common patterns. They show up all over the world in myths and dreams among people who have never met. So, for Jung, mythology shows the richness and the wonder of human, human, humanity played out in the form of storytelling. What Jesus was great at was telling stories, telling, telling parables. And, and what this led Jung to affirm is that we are not human beings seeking to have a spiritual experience. We are spiritual beings needing to have a human experience. So if we choose to take that particular journey. Now, I um, started showing this slide in here well over 20 years ago. As a matter of fact, I first showed this slide in here in 1998. <laughs> That is when I began teaching Ordinary Life. That's a long time ago. I quit showing the slide when I began to detect that people were carrying tomatoes to church. <laughs> <laughs> They'd seen it enough. About 10% of us is above the surface of the water. The rest is the unconscious. And the very tippy top of that iceberg is what we call the ego. And I did show this for a long time. And then I moved into doing a more accurate uh, analytic one, which shows the conscious mind on top of the personal unconscious, which also contains our personal shadow. And beneath that is the collective unconscious, 
which I think really is Jung's unique contribution to the understanding of psychology. This is where all the great myths reside. This is where all the great archetypes live. So that if you went to the Star Wars movies and you were moved by that, it's because there's something in you already that resonates with that story. Okay? <laughs> did I say something funny? I just, Star Wars just makes me think of my youngest son. We have an ongoing battle about whether Darth Vader is actually good or not. He He's becomes both. he becomes a force ghost, which means he was good, but he destroyed whole galaxies for the rest of his life. So okay. Just <laughs> so just this year, I have a union analyst friend of mine who gave me this graphic that she uses in her teaching. So it's more complicated, but here. The consciousness is above the surface of the water. And then just beneath the surface of the water is the unconscious. And as you delve deeper, you encounter and hopefully move through your layers of parents. Mm. If you read Richard Rohr's daily meditation today, you read how most of us form our images of God based on the experience we have with our parents. And so the mystics, um, like uh, Meister Eckhart, would say that if you're going to get to God, you have to let these things go. And you also find the same teaching in Buddhism about giving up the attachments, many of which are unconscious to us. And underneath that, you have the family and the clan, the tribe, nature, religion, culture, civilization, the primitive human and then the Imago Dei, or the image of God. Now this provides us a good background for understanding the story of the encounter Jesus had with the Samaritan woman at the well. One of the most powerful symbols of the unconscious is water. We were born in water, we lived in water the first nine months of our lives, we're 80% water. There was a debate among the angels when God made humans saying, do you think 80% makes them too squishable? <laughs> oh. My kids tell me I'm squishy all the time. Squishy all the time? <laughs> you dream of water in your dreams in one way or another, you're having a, a dream of the unconscious. Many people report that they are able when they have dreams underwater, that they're able to breathe underwater, that they're able to swim underwater, that there's no problem there. Um, the condition of the water, the container of the water is all very important in being able to do analytic work. In the Nicodemus story, you had water. You had water into wine in the first sign story. And, and here Jesus speaks of the living water that can lead to transformation. Now, wells in the Bible, in both the Hebrew Scriptures and in the New Testament, wells are symbolic of where things come together. So you have meetings at the wells. Things come together. Mostly women. Mostly women. Because women were charged with getting water. But in depth psychology, the coming of together of things is called integration. The word integration means getting your stuff together, being whole, 
It's the uh, teaching of Jesus in Matthew, be complete as God is complete. Sadly, it got mistranslated as be perfect, but mm -hmm. that's not what it mm -hmm. means. Further, in this story of uh, meeting of the woman at the well, there are two very, very different words used for the source of water. The woman speaks of a well that is deep and one that one needs a bucket to go down into and draw water up out of. Jesus talks about water that wells up from inside, like a spring that comes out of the ground. Sometimes it comes rushing with great and upsetting force. We call those nightmares. Mm. Sometimes it comes with dreams that you wake up from in the morning and you say, thank God, that was just a dream. I will tell you now, don't ever say that to a union analyst. <laughs> because over a period of time, we learn that what happens on the inner world is much more real than what happens in the outer world. So the spring represents a source of life that is already within us and which we need to do the work of being open to and opening up to. Um, this is a very paradoxical thing. We need both kinds of the wells. We have both kinds of the wells in us. We need to do the work of going deep, letting the bucket down, and we also need to be open to that which comes up involutionally uh, in our dreams, in the slips of the tongue, in accidents that we have, in impulses that we have that we pay attention to. So a few years ago, I came up in here with a phrase to describe the times in which we live. And I said we live between the no longer and the not yet. Now the writers of John lived in such a time. An old order was coming to an end. And a new order had not yet come. Remember John was written probably in the first part of the year 100, 102. To, the scholars say certainly no earlier than 90, the late 90s. When we're living in one of these in-between times, which I propose we are in this country right now, these times produce doubt and confusion and above all, a profound sense of dissatisfaction. That's why some people are willing to trash the whole system because... That dissatisfaction has grown to that proportion. I think this is what underlies much of the violence of our time. And it doesn't take a visionary to see that apocalypse is in the air. That society and culture as we know it is drawing to a close. And, and for me, the urgent spiritual issue of our time is that of finding and living from resources that equip us to live with those values that I keep bringing up in here that are peace, love, hope, joy, patience, and humility. We have the resources within us. Mm -hmm. We need to do the work to let down the deep bucket and also to be open to what comes involutionally. Hmm. As Bill was talking, I was 
remembering two things. One, um, when I first read this text, the John Sanford book, um, explicating this story in John as well as the, the story itself, I had a dream in which I was standing in the middle of a river and it was a murky river and I was pulling bodies out left and right, alive bodies, not, not dead bodies, and setting them on the banks of the river. And I continued to do this uh, until all of the bodies were removed from the river and the river became clear. Got any words for that one? I'll talk about it later. Ooh, you've got issues, Holly. I'm just kidding. Well, I, I could tell you now, but I'd have to charge you. Okay, all right. <laughs> Take up a collection for that? Can, yeah. um, <laughs> So that, and I was rereading my notes when, during the first reading of this chapter, and, uh, and I was blown away when I found this story by Musa Dub about the African women by the well. Because what she is saying is, it is women in Africa who will go forth and change the society. These are the people who will free us from the colonizer, free us from this perception of the white Jesus who comes to save Africans. And, and I was so blown away by the, the inherent feminism in her story, as well as by the concept of liberation. And I'm going to talk a little bit about two things, liberation psychology and liberation theology. Jesus is a liberation theology. He wasn't a... Maybe we might not even say he was a theologian. Do you think he was? He was definitely a liberator. He was he, a storyteller. He, he was a teacher. He was a yeah. rabbi. Yeah. So I mentioned last week that I've been listening to this book called Psychologies of Liberation, and it has been so rewarding, and I recommend it um, to you. <laughs> so did Matt Russell this week. Ah, well, he's the one who recommended it to me, so there you go. Um, this is... Uh, a concept in psychology first imagined by a Jesuit priest, Ignacio Martín Barro. He challenged people to see the connection between mental health, human rights, and the struggle against injustice. So in many ways, liberatory psychology emerged from depth psychology. This book talks about the relationship between the two because depth psychology, when it was first coming into being, challenged the status quo and it initiated a process by which individuals could become free of family, social, political, and unconscious factors controlling our behavior. Many of the founders of, uh, you could say more about this than I am learning this from this book, but the founders of depth psychology were self-identified Marxists, socialists, um, people who really were against the ruling class, if you will. Well, it came into being at a time when there was great chaos yeah, in the world. Absolutely. And uh, was that there's a letter that Jung writes to his dear friend in America, whose name I'm forgetting, about this, this unsettling world, right? And I'm not sure if we're going to make it through. That, that, that is the quote in which Jung says that uh, it appears that the light is going out yeah. in the world. The one thing that we can be sure of the light within us cannot be cannot extinguished. Cannot be extinguished. Yeah. So, like many radical movements, this happened to Christianity, this happened even in depth psychology, it got institutionalized. It began to rely, depth psychology began to rely more and more on pathology rather than on shifts in consciousness. 
So it, it began to rely more on DSM-5, 6, where are we now? DSM, whatever number it is now. I think it's the 6. Are we on the 6 DSM? You use it every day. I don't day. know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't use it. I don't know. Anyways, um, but those people who challenge these shifts in consciousness rather than kind of the direction towards pathology were cast out of the field of vet psychology. A lot of them became independent practitioners, and that's where we saw the rise in um, kind of individual therapy. But it's also remained male-dominated and largely Eurocentric. So liberatory psychology aims to take into account the individual within the community with his, her, or their social and political context. We cannot remove our understanding of the individual from the community within, within which they live. This is a really important next step for depth psychology that so often, while very necessary to focus on the interior world, depth psychology is, is more individual than it is communal. So instead, liberatory psychology focuses on the interior and the exterior world. It goes from the intrapersonal, understanding what's going on within, to the interpersonal, understanding what's going on between, and then to the citizenship level. Are you empowered to make moves toward your own freedom, toward your community freedom? It seeks to empower people to acquire all the information and resources they need to make choices about their own futures, and then also to rise up with the community. It is never just about the self. It is always about the community. Similarly, liberation theology shifts ideas about God and self, about God and the world. So whereas before God was a distant, otherworldly figure who occasionally intervened in human affairs, Liberation theology has a preferential option for the poor, and it preferences the imminence of everyday lives and everyday people. God is right here. God is not out there. Sounds familiar. God is situated among the human beings on earth, and especially, as I said, among the poor and the dispossessed. In other words, if there is a God, it is a God interested in justice. The African telling of the woman at the well rejects the notion that African people needed the proverbial white Jesus or white colonizer to save them. What they need, they already have and can be trusted to utilize it for the needs of the community. Um, there's another saying, an African saying that says if you, uh, I'm gonna get it a little bit wrong, if you, if you give a man a dollar He'll spend it on himself. If you give a woman a dollar, she'll feed the entire community. So this, this is very much about the, the empowerment of the feminine as well. And in, in Musa, Dub, Musa Dub's eyes, she sort of t empowers women or takes that charge up to say, go, do what you know you need to do. You are the change makers. And this is the incredible twist that she has. The prophetess, the woman who is the sort of stand-in for Jesus, dressed in white, hands her back this water, hands her back the gourd filled with the water that was initially given to the prophetess, and she says, you already have what you need. You've got it. Now go. Empower your village. Mobilize your people. We know that the woman who leaves the well, who we call the Samaritan, 
she runs the risk of going back to the village and being disbelieved. She's kind of like the prisoner from last week talking about the allegory of the cave who has seen the light, who has seen something that she has within, and she runs the risk of going back and telling people who are still in the dark, who have not received this light, and being chastised. She, has, she runs the risk of being cast out. It's really hard for people whose imaginations have been sort of colonized or imprisoned to imagine themselves free. I think I, I, there have been several people this week that have been freed on false charges after decades in prison. Can you imagine decades in prison and you go out and you're like, whoa, the world has changed. One guy for 43 years? So, you know, this is this space we stand in. All of us in here can look around at the world and go, something ain't right. And we see this water. We see this living water that the woman is carrying in the gourd. We can almost taste its coolness, how refreshing it is. But I think the question is, will we absorb it? Will we allow it to nourish us? And will we then take the next step of changing our ways? to see what is possible, not just what is, but what can be. This is also the, the work of liberation psychology and theology, which is the, uh, the allowance for the imagination to imagine what can be. Will we change our ways so that not only us, not only the self can be freed, but so that everyone can be free? Implicit in both of these, liberation psychology and theology, is trust. Trust that individuals and communities know what they need and have what they need to come up with solutions. It's often slower and it's more painful, but infinitely it's more rewarding and more lasting because the people involved have made the changes needed. And liberation is never ever just about me. It's about we. It's about all of us. We're in need of a kind of liberation right now, one that's not dependent on religious doctrine or ideology. We need to trust that we know what we know, that what we see with our eyes is real, that what we know in our hearts is real. And we need to move forward with other bodies, minds, and hearts kind of linked arm in arm. We're not in this alone. And that, I think, is the gift of the liberatory movements. We are not in this alone. Well, <laughs> uh, I, I hope you are beginning to see how it's such a tragic mistake to trivialize the teachings in the Bible, particularly in the Gospel of John, by taking them literally. That's a huge mistake. But it's a mistake that's being made by fundamentalism all over the world, not just in the Christian religion, but in others as well. You see it in, in the Islamic religion when the Quran is taken at a literal level. It's a huge mistake. Anyway, so we have a few minutes, and uh, I thought we would ask um, comments, questions about the Gospel of John, or would you like to hear some puns? <laughs> Please have questions. Yeah. <laughs>
Yes, sir, David. And we'll repeat the questions for the camera too. Yeah, we have a definition of sacred mysteries. And I think it was referred to in one of Richard Rohr's this week. Uh, a good number of us, I think I'm one of them, don't recall our memories, I mean our dreams. Mm. Almost all the time. Any practice to improve that? Mm. Yes, I think so. Uh, first of all, I, I would remind you that the word mystery has a root in Sanskrit that means and the literal translation of the word in its etymological history is mystery is that of which nothing should be said. Not can't be said, but should not be said. Uh, so we talk some in here about uh, John A.T. Robertson's book, Honest to God, that came out in the 90s and was such a huge hit. Maybe it was in the 60s. It came, it came out. It was such a huge hit. Uh, and Robertson proposed not using the word God anymore. Mm -hmm. And that was met with a lot of enthusiasm, but we just couldn't stick to it. Mm -hmm. Because the danger is that when we use the word God, we think we know what we're talking about. But it's a mystery. It's sacred but not other than secular either. It is all-encompassing. And, and the best I can do is that in a little book that I recommend that people use for daily devotion, uh, Always We Begin Again, there is in the beginning of that book a, definite, a, a list of all the labels and terms that people historically have used for God. Uh, Buddhists, they don't have one, but they have a lot of mystery mm -hmm. in, in their teachings. I'll give you a double message about dreams. <laughs> Your dream life is autonomous. It comes and it goes. The other side of that is that if you go to bed tonight and you put a pad of paper by your bed or a digital recorder and you say on going to sleep, to your dream maker, you say, dream maker, give me a dream and I will honor it. And then just see what happens. Robert Johnson, uh, my teacher, uh, said, um, who, who taught us, do not interpret, it, do not ever interpret anybody's dreams, and then he taught us how to do how it. To do it. <laughs> Robert Johnson has a book called Inner Work. And I think you can get it on the Kindle. And that book will really help generate a field of energy around the capacity to dream and to have active imagination. Mm -hmm. So that's my best, best advice there. Get that book. Ask your dream maker to give you a dream. Honor it. When I was in my first phase of analytic training, uh, the analyst that I was working with said, you know, uh, unconsciousness responds to consciousness in the same way that consciousness regards unconsciousness. And I said, as many of you are now saying, huh? <laughs> and he said it again, unconsciousness responds to consciousness in the same way that consciousness regards unconsciousness. 
And then he demonstrated what he meant with his hands, and I got it. He said, unconsciousness, which is down here, responds to consciousness, which is up here. The same way that consciousness regards what's down here. So that if consciousness does not regard the unconscious, the well dries up. Right. So we have to do that digging to get those rivulets open to regard it. And what um, Robert said was that the unconscious job is to get the attention of the conscious mind and the unconscious will say, okay, if you're not going to pay attention to me, I'll get your attention I'll some other attention. way. <laughs> I'll make you have like, an affair or, yeah. or an addiction yeah. or an accident. Mm -hmm. I'm, my job is to get you before you go so that you can die before you die. Mm -hmm. And then you won't be afraid of dying. Mm -hmm. Two things I'll add. One is around sacred mystery. I have just come to think of it as reality. And reality never ceases to surprise, amaze, and cause me to wonder. And that is the best I can do. Um, and around dreams, I, I'm not a dream analyst, but I, I have a very active dream life. I always have. And, but there are many, there are weeks and weeks and weeks where I just remember scraps. You know, just like, oh, I remember something, a color or a, an image or a something. And, and, and there was a long time when I just wrote down the scraps, you know. And, and sometimes, sometimes artwork would come out of that, sometimes poetry. And sometimes you wake with a feeling. I don't have any clue what just happened last night, but the feeling could be there. And I think that's a way to start paying attention to it, too. Sanford also has a book. I know I recommend a lot of books. Sanford also has a book <laughs> called Dreams, God's Forgotten Language, mm -hmm. which is helpful to stimulate this part of your life. And Sanford says that having a dream and not honoring it is like getting a letter from God and not reading it. Ma'am? Could you repeat the book? The title of the book is Dreams, God's Forgotten Language, by the same author, John Sanford. Mm -hmm. He was very prolific. I think Sanford wrote maybe 20, 22 books. And, and unlike many people who write, write a lot of books, uh, his are all different. I mean, this commentary on the Gospel of John is really readable, and it's very accessible and stunning. Yeah. We need it for the for the film. Yeah. Thank you, Richard. Hi, I'm Leslie Kaufman. Um, when we talk about dreams, I'm envious of people who remember their dreams. I sleep so soundly, I don't remember any of my dreams. But I will say that in the morning when I wake up, I have a new, fresh look. If there are problems, um, they seem to... I have answers to them. So I do pay attention greatly to what my unconscious, and it has shared beautifully to, with, to me over the years and helped me through many problems. So I wish I could remember a dream, but I never do. Never. Except maybe if I take a little nap. Then I, have, I can remember one. Well, Sanford's book on uh, inner work, uh, the utilization of active imagination will substitute for that. 
Mm -hmm. You've got to read that book. It's too much for us to, to get. You can, you can do it awake. You can participate in active imagination in a state of wakefulness, too. So um, I, I, we're going to have time for a couple question. more, Bill? Um, I think we should make time. I think we what? Maybe, maybe do you have time for a couple more? Okay. Yeah. I'm interested. <clears throat> I'm interested in the last lady who just commented because I think we share a common occurrence. I rarely ever remember any of my dreams. On the other hand, I think of dreams as something that is well described in the sleep literature called rapid eye movement phase. And the thing is that I think that it has many different physiologic or bodily function attributes that we describe when it comes to the feeling part of it and the interpretation part of it, which I think is uh, very strong in, in Jungian analysis, I think that's a whole different field. Mm -hmm. And I think the second comment I would make is that uh, uh, this, the idea of having strength from a community, I would <coughs> also express uh, perhaps some counterpoint to the strength of community because communism is where my family grew up, otherwise known as communism. And communism can be, become one of the most evil forces in society, whether it's the long-time powerful Catholic Church, whether it's political psychology derived from uh, belief of groups. I think that these are all things that we have to consider when we want to push society in one direction or the other. And my sense is that the only thing we can change is ourselves from the inside out. Uh, George, I, I want to respond to that by saying that uh, another function of the community is uh, storytelling. Mm -hmm. And storytelling uh, can substitute for the function of dreams in the communal setting. And that's how John was created. It's how stories function at the collective unconscious level, is that people get together and tell these epic stories. And that's when, the truth. And when you have community systems or political systems that are oppressive, they're not allowing the individual to thrive. So this is like a constant simultaneous both and. As the individuals become more aware, more participatory, more um, empowered, so the community shifts as well. So there's, you know, this, I use the phrase autonomous and embedded a lot. We are autonomous in that the only thing we can control is ourselves, but we are embedded in that everything that we do impacts everyone and everything else around us. And it's well, I need to keep yeah. tight time boundaries Close today because I have another out. job. <laughs> and I will just remind you, um, those of you who don't normally attend services at St. Paul's, this is the beginning of Advent, the first Sunday in Advent. It's always a rich time. Uh, I hope I don't offend any of the churchgoers by saying this. St. Paul's during Advent and Christmas is some of the best theater in town. Mm. And so good music <laughs> and good pomp and circumstance. Uh, have, huh? And a Christmas tree. Yeah. Have, have, have a good uh, Advent, and we'll see you here next week. No matter where you are in your spiritual journey, no matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this. You carry sacred cargo, so watch your step. <clears throat>